This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays, 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Well, back in 2014, an article uh, pondered as to whether um, young man at the University of Toronto might be the next Einstein. That's a lot to live up to. Uh, but I think what we can say about uh, Deep Prasad is that he's the first Deep Prasad. Uh, and, and that is still quite an achievement at just 23 years of age, making quite a name for himself. Uh, as CEO of Reactive Q, which is working on the first generation of quantum computers uh, and, and the potential that those have to really change our world in a lot of ways, I don't think is overstating the case. Uh, so joining us to talk a bit more uh, about quantum physics, quantum computers and more, very pleased to welcome in the program, uh, Deep Prasad, an engineer and physicist from the University of Toronto, CEO of Reactive Q. Uh, Deep, so great to have you with us here. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Uh, I am very excited to be here. Well, I appreciate you making some time for us. I'm looking forward to some of these conversations. Now, um, let's talk about how you ended up uh, at Reactive Q and, and working on quantum computers. I mean, was this something that really fascinated you to begin with, something that you were really looking to get into? Uh, yeah, exactly. So um, the story is basically uh, a bit of luck and um, kind of like just searching the right opportunities uh, and just having everything there and you know at the right place at the right time so for context um, roughly about a year before I finished my undergrad in engineering uh, at the University of Toronto I recently had gotten very like uh, sort of obsessed with quantum mechanics again uh, I used to read out about it passively as a kid but it was like I didn't uh, have the sort of mathematical lexicon to be able to understand the more uh, nuanced aspects of it. Um, and now that part, now that it hit me, uh, it really intrigued me. So um, I learned everything there was about the history, uh, how we developed uh, physics in general in the early 20th century. And one thing uh, was clear, which was that when I graduated, I wanted to work uh, in some field where I could sort of make best of both, uh, uh, the best of both worlds, mm -hmm. where I could both uh, exceed in, you know, business and also be able to do, like, really good science. And uh, during that sort of journey, uh, I cold-called Waterloo's Primer Institute for Theoretical Physics because I was looking for people who had worked in the intersection of quantum mechanics and machine learning. Uh, and I had been watching some lectures by a professor from MIT. His name is Seth Lloyd. And he's sort of like one of the fathers, you can say, of quantum machine learning. And uh, so, yeah, I, I wanted to meet some experts from there. And they connected me with one who ended up being one of the best physicists in the world. And he's very, very you know, passionate uh, and supportive, you can say. Like, he sort of uh, persuaded me to apply to this incubator. Uh, and it's hosted at the Rotman uh, Institute. It's at uh, the University of Toronto. 
And essentially, uh, it's a it's the world's first quantum computing incubator. What they did was over the like the last five years, they had developed all these partnerships with uh, the main quantum computing hardware providers out there. So that's the D-Wave and the Rigettis and the Xanadu's of the world. And these uh, people, they created a partnership with a bunch of sort of very prominent venture capitalists from Silicon Valley, as well as sort of like the, you could say the big tech world. And what they did was every year they were selecting 40 people from around the world to participate in this incubator where the first month they kind of like give you a, a very extensive boot camp into quantum computing and quantum mechanics and how it all plays a role. And you get to program your first quantum <laughs> computers, which was extremely exciting. And so anyways, I applied to that uh, incubator and I got in. And uh, since then, I was able to raise funding from Bloomberg and um, the University of Toronto, as well as some venture capitalist firms from uh, Silicon Valley. I've currently been able to engage with, you know, some of the top, like, engineers uh, in the world in some very interesting engineering problems. And you're, you're absolutely right. Quantum computing uh, is a paradigm shift and a half. It's just in yeah. infancy right now, but uh, it's a really interesting place to be. So, yeah, I hope that answers your question. Well, yeah, it does. And it's fascinating because, I mean, Einstein, obviously... <laughs> Uh, you know, had his issues with with uh, quantum physics. Uh, Richard Feynman famously Absolutely. said that nobody understands quantum mechanics. I mean, we're able yep. to harness it, but do we understand it? Um, well, that's a great question. Exactly. Like, uh, you got the right point, which is that we can harness it, but do we really understand what is going on? Uh, right now, the answer is no, because um, we're kind of in the intersection where the problem is philosophical in nature and philosophy doesn't necessarily pay, right? So, like, we can use quantum mechanics to build really good circuits even today, um, you know, better NMRs and, like, uh, really any kind of microelectronic you can think of. But what we uh, can't do is explain why is it that, you know, nature acts the way that it does when it comes down to looking deep enough into, say, the quantum world. Like, why is it that if I use this very powerful microscope, let's say, and I look very, very, very closely at what's going on, and nothing is uh, how it behaves when I'm in the classical world. And the classical world is essentially, in our case, everything you observe, everything you measure. Uh, anything, when you're making a measurement, you're collapsing the wave function. What And what we don't understand is what is the nature of the wave function? Uh, what does it actually mean to be an observer? We know what happens, but, you know, what, like, is a sentient robot, for example, uh, would that constitute as being an observer? Um, can a measurement be, you know, yeah, non-deterministic and can be predicted instead? Um, yeah, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, the potential and really the, the raw power, I guess you'd say, of, of quantum computing. I mean, it's it's a game changer in so many ways. I mean, it's almost mind-blowing to think. I mean, when you look at, at security issues, for example, uh, why is it that quantum computing is so powerful? So it comes down to the fact that uh, certain encryption protocols rely on the fact that it takes a very long time to calculate the right answer. And now calculating the right answer is equivalent to, uh, let's say, unlocking the right safe uh, or the safe password, right? So you have um, a safe with a passcode that has 10 digits and only one of those 
uh, combinations is correct. So when you have a classical computer, they'll sort of um, sequentially try to crack these, um, let's say, hypothetical safes, right? They'll try every combination of number they can think of until they get the right one. Um, or if it comes down to obfuscating it in math and you have to calculate the answer instead, but the concept is still the same, uh, you have digital computers, which is every computer we have today. They'll take, um, they'll do it step by step. They'll solve one equation at a time. Um, whereas with quantum computing, there are certain problems where we can just get right to the answer. We can cut to the chase. Um, the reason is because the way quantum information is processed is much different. Sometimes the way that we can use it uh, gives us huge advantages over the way we would process information uh, digitally. And the reason why is because you have effects like quantum tunneling, uh, superposition, you have entanglement, uh, and you know you have a whole host of sort of exotic quantum phenomena that end up being super useful in quantum computing. So, yeah. But I mean, you know, and, and exp- tell me if this is true, because my understanding is sure. that if, if I had, you know, the, the world's most difficult password, uh, that yeah. a quantum computer could crack that almost instantly. It depends on uh, what the uh, encryption scheme was on the password. Um, if it's based on, like, let's say RSA, where you're trying to calculate the prime factorization of a number, that's like what... Uh, a lot of the backbone of the internet relies on and banking relies on. It's this RSA thing. It's the fact that if you take a large enough number, it will take forever for a regular computer to figure out what is the uh, correct prime factor that acts as sort of like the password in this case. So, um, yeah, with quantum computing, if your password was encrypted by RSA, then and you had a good enough quantum computer, then I could cut to the chase and sort of figure out your password in seconds. Whereas some computers, even supercomputers, might take like greater than the age of the entire universe uh, <laughs> to get the right answer. That's great. So, yeah. But yeah. I, I guess it would cut the other way then when it comes to creating security, uh, that the quantum computers would, would certainly be able to, to address that side of it. They help in security law too. You're absolutely right. There's something called quantum key distribution, for example, where it's how do you dish out passwords and keys uh, such that they're as secure as possible? Or like, how can you um, do a computation that's completely blind? So what I mean by that is this. Let's say you have a regular computer. Let's, let's say a data center or a server at Facebook that computes all the uh, AI recommendation engines for every single person on Facebook. The thing about those computers is that they have access to the input information, they have access to the output, and they have access to the actual computation that they did. So at one point, that computer knows everything uh, about the information they computed on. Whereas with quantum computers, you can uh, create, um, in a very interesting way, these homomorphic encryption schemes where they the quantum computer can still function just as well as a quantum computer can, but it has no idea what the input was or the output or what uh, computation it did, making it, like, just by default, much more safer and private than your regular computer. 
talking quantum physics, quantum computers, and more with Deep Prasad, uh, engineer physicist out of the University of Toronto, CEO at Reactive Q. Uh, so, Deep, in terms then of these first generation quantum computers, I mean, how far off are we from these being in 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 use, and how how do you see it changing the world? Sure. Um, again, another good question. So, when it comes to how far we are. Um, we're both very far and not very far in the sense that we finally proved that we can actually build these quantum computers. We finally have these very metaphorically small, very noisy quantum machines. You know, they can process quantum information. We can prove that they did that, uh, which for a very long time, for decades, we weren't sure if that was possible. Um, now that we're there, what we need to do is prove that we can build a quantum computer that is much more advantageous in an in industry problem, in a problem that we actually care about. Um, and that is going to be a bit tricky. That can be, you know, anywhere between six years to 18 years out, depending on how fast we develop certain hardware infrastructures and whether they actually, uh, you know, meet their promises. But we will see about that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, regarding, though, how they'll impact the world, uh, there's a ton of different avenues. So my favorite way, for example, is how quantum computers can affect quantum simulations uh, and simulating nature in general. Because in the end of the day, when you look close enough, right, like uh, everything is quantum mechanical. And so therefore, if you wanted to simulate nature, as Richard Feynman pointed out, you need a quantum computer. So one of the real-life examples of that or applications is the idea that you can create uh, very, very precise medicine for any situation, any disease, any illness, if you have the correct quantum computer and the right science. So um, the reason why is because all the, like the entire body can be described as cells and, um, you know, chemical equations, and chemical equations can be approximated by quantum mechanical equations. Because at the end of the day, what's actually happening is, again, quantum mechanical so if you can simulate all the biochemical reactions in your body, you can and you can simulate the um, way that the medicine will interact with it, uh, you can create these medicines without side effects, for example, or that will do exactly what they're supposed to. Um, another cool application of quantum computing for simulations is you can build all these very uh, powerful microelectronics. So imagine if, like, your jacket was also a... Uh, supercomputer at the same time. It constantly monitored the heat in your body and it was also able to say distribute the compute power of like your augmented reality glasses, right? Uh, like it, the applications are very limitless. It will also um, sort of change the way that we can teach uh, people. Like, for example, if you had a really cool uh, VR sort of setting like uh a virtual reality room where you were simulating a classical, uh, you know, an elementary school uh, chemical chemistry experiment, or let's say a high school chemistry experiment. That is accessible to people like us, but let's say you're somewhere in um, an impoverished country or like somewhere in, say, India, where they don't have access to that. They could actually simulate using these quantum computers what the chemical experiments would result in. And they would learn the exact same thing without actually having to spend the money in conducting these experiments. So, yeah, like I think uh, 
it will change. It can change every facet of life, but uh, right now, um, it's going to be very niche aspects that will change. Um, the same way that digital computers first helped very niche markets, and then they're now everywhere. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you something else you're involved in, uh, and, and I believe it, it involves your work at Reactive Q, and I know this is getting a lot of attention. I, I've read some articles about this. Uh, the idea of exotic materials or, or reverse engineering. Uh, explain what, what that entails and, and what that refers to. So, uh, so yeah. Um, so, essentially, just to uh, clear it up, I'm currently entertaining a different entity where I would where they're working on the exotic materials on. It's not directly related to the reactive. Oh, okay. Cube. Okay. Yeah. All right. Eventually, no, though. Yeah. Exactly. Eventually, we might partner. I might put them together. We'll see. But when what I mean by exotic materials is I'm talking about materials that uh, demonstrate properties that are a um, sort of signifying or implying that they are not terrestrial. So, what that means, for example, is that it came from out of the solar system, and it. Uh, obviously, therefore, came from space. The way that we determine that is through spectroscopy. And uh, what uh, spectroscopy tells us is the isotopic ratio of different objects that you can scan and analyze. It's a very well-practiced, very well-established way of determining if something came from Earth or whether it really came uh, from outer space, uh, like truly outer space. So... uh, when it comes to exotic materials, I'm interested in materials that have this property, and they're not just meteorites. I'm looking for materials, uh, and we're working with um, materials, currently just one material, that demonstrates this property where it has, um, it qualifies as exotic because it's both extraterrestrial isotope ratios uh, in nature, um, and it also demonstrates signs of engineering. It's not uh, something that seems to be a natural phenomenon. So what that means to us is that this thing could have been legitimately engineered in an environment not on Earth. Uh, So it could be direct proof uh, of life uh, out there and of life uh, sort of visiting us. Yeah. Do you think we could find that? We, our lab has a sample. We we are currently independently verifying the isotopic ratios. Uh, the first lab to look at it concluded that the ratios were extremely skewed, like they were completely non-terrestrial, uh, which means that it's uh, very, w- we need to, of course, confirm it, but it seems very obvious that uh, it's at least not from Earth. And what we're trying to do is demonstrate and figure out whether this was uh, engineered or not. My gut feeling is that uh, it seems quite obviously engineered. Uh, certain aspects of it um, are sort of telltale signs. But it's uh, in academia, it comes down to sort of like a battlefield. You're, you need to prepare for anything. And <laughs> uh, yeah, that's, so, so we, we really just need to leave no corner, un- uh, no stone unturned before we sort of make any claims uh, scientifically. But the goal is to publish this in a uh, recognized journal and sort of get the attention of the scientific community. Well, that certainly would get the attention of the scientific community. <laughs> I, I well, would say I, so. You never know, though. I, I, I've learned to never underestimate the, uh, 
the desensitization, I guess, uh, and ignorance and apathy of the masses, even in, no matter their profession. Where, where, where do you think that comes from, though? Uh, part of that is technology. Most of it, though, is because we are so um, focused on just getting putting food on the table, and most of our cognitive resources goes towards that. So we just don't have time to think about, you know, the implications of what I just talked about, for example. Like, imagine if uh, we really do confirm this definitively. Uh, you can't um, rewrite that, right? Like, you can't undo that. That really happened. But uh, it takes energy to really soak that in and change your world model and go through that sort of, I don't know, I would say existential crisis of sorts, um, right? It's just not... Uh, economic for most people to go through. Fascinating stuff. Uh, we'll leave it there. Deep more at uh, reactiveq.io. People can find you, follow yep. you on Twitter at Deep Neuron. It's been real fun yeah, talking to you here so. today. Hopefully we'll do it again sometime. Likewise. Uh, right. This was great. All the best to you, Deep. Take care. Uh, yeah. That is uh, Deep Prasad. He is an engineer physicist out of the University of Toronto. Probably one of the handful of people on the planet who, as much as humans can, uh, comprehend uh, the fascinating world of, of quantum physics. He's the CEO of Reactive Q, uh, working with uh, companies like Lockheed, uh, Tesla, and, and others. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.